Welcome to USURF Spotlight, a new series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we discuss major topics and issues in the news and explore how those issues are impacting religious freedom around the globe. Here is USURF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, leading this week's discussion. Welcome to USURF Spotlight. This is our 10th episode of a new series started in 2020. We're gonna go deeper today on Nigeria. Just last month in December, 2020, the US State Department designated Nigeria for the first time ever as a country of particular concern or CPC for engaging in and tolerating systematic ongoing and egregious religious freedom violations. To get a better sense of why now, we're gonna take a look at the religious freedom landscape in Nigeria and the reasoning and the impact of the new designation and explore options for how the US government can engage with Nigeria to reduce religious freedom violations and promote freedom of religion and belief for all Nigerians. To do this, we're fortunate today to have Dr. John Campbell of the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Campbell served as U.S. Ambassador to Nigeria from 2004 to 2007 and continues to conduct research on Nigeria at CFR. He's the author of a brand new book, Nigeria and the Nation State, Rethinking Diplomacy with the Post-Colonial World, published just last month in December 2020. And he writes the blog, Africa in Transition. Ambassador Campbell, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Great. I want to uh, touch on, as I mentioned, that Nigeria was designated for the first time ever a country of particular concern uh, by the State Department. It's also the first secular democracy to be designated in this capacity. What, in your estimation, do you think triggered the designation this time around? And, and what has been the response to your knowledge of the Nigerian government today? Um, as to what triggered the designation, um, there I would have to refer you to the State Department because it's, yeah, this was very much a state, state Department process. Um, that said, it is clear that there has been an acceleration uh, of religious conflict uh, in Nigeria associated with radical Islamist movements uh, in the North, which appear to be getting stronger uh, also conflict over land and water use in the Middle Belt, which very often acquires an ethnic and even religious coloration. Um, further, the country as a whole is under a good deal of stress because of a nationwide uh, uh, crime wave. Now, you made the comment that this was the first time that a secular democratic state has been so designated. Uh, and that's true, except I would say that in reality, Nigeria is neither secular nor democratic. Its constitution is both. Uh, however, in terms of actual practice, the Southern part of the country is predominantly Christian. The Northern part is predominantly Muslim though the division is not hard and fast and people move back and forth. Nevertheless, in the North, in effect, there are de facto uh, protections for Islam, whereas in the South, in effect, 
there are de facto protections for Christianity. So the state isn't really secular, even though the Constitution provides for as sweeping protections for religious liberty uh, uh, as our own does. Secondly, uh, it isn't democratic in the sense that we Americans use the word. That is to say, um, those who actually run Nigeria are not really responsive to the mass of the population. Uh, so Nigeria is a peculiar entity. That's what my book is all about. My book argues that Nigeria is not a conventional nation state and that our diplomacy, by assuming that it is, uh, often falls short of what it otherwise could accomplish. Very interesting insights. Sir. I, you know, you, you referenced the, the extremist activity. Some of the most egregious violations uh, of religious freedom are conducted by the militant Islamist groups in the north of the country, like Boko Haram or, oh, yes. or, or the Islamic State affiliated groups. Um, the Nigerian government's been battling Boko Haram, though, for, for nearly a decade, and yet the group still finds a way to persist and continues to target individuals on the basis of their religion and otherwise. Certainly, we know they've attacked you know, police and military facilities, but also they do target individuals on the basis of their faith. They've, they've kidnapped girls and, and so on. Why has the Nigerian government's campaign against the Boko Haram and other uh, violent uh, Islamist insurgencies how have they failed to quell the violence in the longer term? And what, what could they do, in your estimation, differently and more effectively at this point? Um, this, of course, is a, is a central question. Uh, and when you say that Boko Haram and similar groups uh, target faith communities, that includes Muslim communities um, that essentially practice a different uh, ver variant of Islam. And most of Boko Haram's victims, in fact, have been Muslims. Now, the really interesting question, I think, is why uh, since 2011, and with the enormous expenditure of treasure, has the Nigerian government been unable to defeat Boko Haram or even um, limit its activities? And I think here there are a number of different answers. Um, first of all, uh, Boko Haram has a popular base of support. Uh, how large is very hard to know. But if, in fact, 10% um, of the North's population is somehow or another sympathetic to Boko Haram, that's 10 million people. Uh, which provides a virtually inexhaustible uh, uh, supply of recruits. In other words, amongst other things, Boko Haram is a reflection of alienation from uh, Nigeria uh, that is pretty widespread uh, in the North, even amongst those uh, who not, do not turn to violence. That's the first point. The second point would be that the Nigerian government, in fact, is very weak. Uh, it is, it has a very small army, um, a bit more than 100,000. Uh, the size of the police is quite small, perhaps 400,000. 
All of this in a country with a population of some 214 million people. Further, the government, in addition to having to deal with Boko Haram in the north, also has to cope with a low-level insurrection in the oil patch and conflicts over water and land use uh, in, in the Middle Belt. So it's, it's very much stretched. An important underlying factor is that by and large, Nigerians do not particularly identify with the Nigerian government, or even for that matter, with the Nigerian state. Uh, there is interesting polling data that shows that Nigerian identification with the state is less than most other African, uh, African countries. Nigerians are loyal primarily, first of all, to their families, secondly, to their religion, thirdly, to their ethnic group, uh, fourth, to the particular region that they come from. And oh yes, by the way, I guess we're also Nigerian. Now there are exceptions to this, uh, particularly in the more developed parts of the country like, uh, like Lagos, uh, uh, and Baden and, and Port Harcourt. But the, the gulf between the Nigerian government and Nigerian politics uh, and most Nigerians is pretty wide. And all of this uh, makes it difficult for the government to, uh, uh, to destroy what is in fact a brutal terrorist movement. So it sounds like we have quite an insurmountable situation on our hands, but how about we move to the uh, middle part of the country, the middle belt, where we continue to see ongoing ethno-religious violence among farming and herding communities, including attacks on churches and abductions of religious leaders, uh, and mosques. Uh, the casualty rates, unfortunately, of this kind of violence seem to be higher uh, than in the Boko Haram attacks even. And we know that this is resulting years, in yes. ten yeah, and we and we see that there's tens of thousands of deaths in you know, over the past two decades that have resulted from this kind of violence. Uh, you know, a little bell. You talked about the Nigerian government's limited capacity to reduce this violence, but what about their ability to hold perpetrators accountable? Why is that so difficult? I mean, can you tell us about the judiciary and the will of the government when they see these violent attacks? We often hear, you know. Uh, excessive use of force by the military and police, but why not at least hold those to account? Yeah, um, indeed. Um, part of the problem is structural, and that is uh, you have parallel legal systems. Uh, you have the legal system that we all tend to think about, which is the descendant of British common law. There is also uh, Islamic law, Sharia, and there is also traditional law, uh, which basically dates from uh, before the colonial era. Further, with these three different legal systems, you can also move cases back and forth amongst them, particularly if you have a clever lawyer. The judiciary in general is way underfunded, way under-resourced. Um, essentially, judicial processes are conducted using paper and pen, uh, not computers. Um, and everything is interlinked to everything else. Um, the prisons are appalling, but 70% of the people in prison uh, have, in fact, never actually been formally arraigned. They are awaiting arraignment. 
That's because the judicial process is so slow. Um, what can be done about this? This is one of those areas where I think uh, we outsiders could be of help. In other words, it's not beyond imagination that we could provide support for the Nigerian judicial system, even if it's nothing more than providing them with generators and computers. Um, similarly, uh, we could, I think, encourage uh, greater contact between the American Bar Association and the National Bar Association and their Nigerian opposite numbers. In other words, if in fact we were to focus below the Ministry of Justice level and instead emphasize those that are most directly involved uh, uh, in, in, supplying, in supplying justice. But now to do that, it means that you have to break outside of the traditional diplomatic way of conducting foreign relations. It means that instead of focusing pretty exclusively on the presidency and on the foreign ministry, you're focused much more on, uh, uh, on a local level. Very interesting. I think this is something that's uh, generating some uh, interest within the uh, State Department to look. How do you empower the state and local level to do some things? How do you uh, provide some carrots there? Also, let me ask you on that level, you know, there's some new tools that exist uh, that could be used uh, as far as accountability. You talk, we talked a little bit about uh, the situation on the ground and some of the uh, more uh, extremist groups that target the individuals, whether Muslim or Christian or otherwise. But we've seen this proliferation, at least more attention on the blasphemy cases, those being targeted in, in particular states, because it is a federal system here, like Kano State in, in the north, where people are being uh, prosecuted, convicted of blasphemy in the Sharia courts. What is your thought on the accountability. There are now targeted sanctions in place for human rights abuses, whether it's called the global Magnitsky uh, law that was passed allows for those uh, committing human rights violations and corruption to be sanctioned, travel bans, asset freezes. Is this a tool in your estimation if indeed there were uh, officials, say a governor of a state that was implementing these harsh sentences for blasphemy, could this be a, a tool that would send a message that this is not acceptable uh, in the 21st century, these kinds of uh, you know, criminal punishments for simply expressing your views? Yes, um, it is certainly a tool that can be used. But I would like to suggest that in parallel, uh, that we, that is to say the US government and certain American NGOs, could take a more positive approach. For example, uh, in Northern Nigeria, uh, there are a significant number of Islamic judges of Sharia courts who will argue that the kinds of barbaric punishments that we talk about are not really part of Islam at all, but instead are an import from Saudi Arabia. In other words, there are, or there is, 
a an internal Islamic reformist stream, uh, which I think deserves our support. Um, here, I think there would be real possibilities to engage um, the uh, Islamic community in the United States. Um, some of these Nigerian uh, Muslim reformers look at how Islam is practiced in the United States, and they like what they see. Very interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, let me, uh, you know, conclude with this just a series of questions here to 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 see what your thinking is on, um, you know. The thought of the U.S. now having leverage here, and I think uh, you've expressed in the past that there is, you know, somewhat limited leverage from the outside on Nigeria, and yet with this tool, with the CPC designation, and uh, you know, uh, Nigerian being a very close ally and such an important country in Africa, what in your mind uh, could be? As some of the best, uh, uh, you know, tools that we have, even if it's a limited toolkit, to pressure the Nigerian government to address some of these violations, to improve uh, the situation on the ground. Um, could this could this uh, designation be used as, you know, impetus for positive change uh, by the government? And and ultimately, what is it? I mean, if if this is you know characterized in terms of this is in Nigerians, uh, the Nigerian governments and the people of Nigeria's best interest to address and, and uh, these issues that that are only causing internal turmoil and making it difficult uh, for Nigeria to, to thrive and, and prosper. Uh, what, what could it take? I mean, whether it's the United States, whether it's other countries that have real interests and concerns and want to see Nigeria succeed, what what would be? You mentioned some of these things to support the judiciary and some of the technical assistance. Is there anything else that you see? Um, basically, what, basically, what you need here uh, is essentially soft diplomacy. Part of the problem with um, designations is that any Nigerian government uh, can say, look, freedom of religion uh, by the constitution in law is absolute. The difficulty is the limited power that the federal government has over subordinate political units or entities. Therefore, what you do is that you approach these subordinate units. Uh, you, uh, you pressure governors of states. You encourage uh, judicial reform. Uh, you look at ways you can ameliorate conditions in, uh, in the prisons. Again, what designation does is it presumes that Nigeria is a nation state in the conventional sense of the word, and that what happens in Nigeria is under the control of the federal government. Well, in lots and lots of areas, it's not, uh, or it's only very, it's only very limited. Um, some years ago, some thinkers uh, within the federal government not representing the federal government, but, but employed by it, suggested that a clearer model of Nigeria 
is that state authority is like an archipelago. It's islands scattered about in a sea, not of ungoverned spaces, but a sea of spaces that are governed by other entities, be they criminal gangs, Boko Haram, traditional rulers, so forth. Thank you so much. We'll have to leave it right here. I want to thank uh, Ambassador John Campbell for his uh, deep insights today. You can find more information about his work on Nigeria at CFR.org. And you can find more details about USERF's reporting and policy recommendations on Nigeria on our website at USERF.gov. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight.